All right, God, we just, uh, as we open up your word, I pray that we just, uh, we just pause before you, that we just set our hearts and our sights and our minds, our intentions, our purposes, our motivations on you. Holy Spirit, I just ask that you would enable me to teach, ask that you would enable us all to learn anything that comes from me, that it would just simply be discarded but everything that comes from you would be embedded in our heart and that it would be made manifest, that we would be encouraged, that we would be excited, that we would be put on mission, that your word would exhort us to your glory under your name and for your fame to the glory of Jesus Christ. And so be active, Holy Spirit, as you are. Rivet us, jolt us, put us on your mission so that the world it's broken and lost as we were once broken and lost, can see you and your ministry in and through us. Again, not for our glory, but for yours in the name of Jesus. Amen. So I got a call, I got a call from Rob, and um, I, I say this every time he asks me to teach. I just say, do you have any direction, any, any sort of, any passage, any air? He's never done a thing. Never said, go for it. Just get up there and do what you do. Start screaming about Revelation or something, right? <clears throat> If you're new, you're scared. Don't worry. We're not in Revelation today. So this is the first time he came back. He just one word. He said, look, just as a a shepherd, where we're going, where the vision is leading us, encourage. He said, just just have a focus on encouraging, you know, with with the congregation, with where we are, with where we're going, with what we've come through. Encourage them. And so some of you are like, I know the Bible. Why on earth would we go to 1 Peter? Right? Like first century church persecution, like Christians were hanging on stakes. Like this is, this is not encouraging. This is, this is absolutely encouraging because he's writing to a church in their most desperate time. And so Peter is penning this letter, this epistle, but who's authoring it? The Bible tells us the Holy Spirit authors scripture, right? So when you have friends, they all oh, man wrote scripture. No, oh, man, pan, he penned scripture, but God authored scripture. Amen. And so when Jesus left, when he ascended back into heaven, he said, I'm going to send the Holy Spirit. And one of the things that the Holy Spirit, and the, the, the day of Pentecost, the church was born. And one of the things that the Holy Spirit did is he came in and he, and he gripped the apostles. And he said, hey, we're going to write the Bible. And so he gripped the apostle Peter. And so Jesus, giving his authority, his ministry, his mission to the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit comes down, grips the apostle Peter, and Peter picks up a pen and he writes this to the church. And so this is quite literally a letter from Jesus, as is the entire Bible. And, and so when we're writing, we're talking, about the, we're talking about the persecuted first century church. And let's be honest. I mean, the Romans were among the most brutal. We've got terrorism, but, but the, the Romans invented it. The use of fear. They invented it. They would go into cities, they would sack the cities, they would rape, pillage, and burn the cities. They would take all the Christians, we have extra biblical accounts, they would take in the upwards 10, 20,000 Christians, put them on stakes, and line the highways into cities. So when you came into that city, you knew Rome was there, and they were not to be messed with. We're talking about the church that meets underground. I've been to Rome. I've been in the underground catacombs where they had to carve out a cavity underneath the earth to meet as a Christian church. And their hallways were lined. Their, their hallways had all these inlets. You know what they stacked their hallways and they built into the walls? Bodies. We're, we're going to act like the church is persecuting America. Stop. 
Stop. Well, Christians look silly when we start talking about Christian persecution. I'm not saying it's not coming. Very well could come a day very soon where you show up and all the pastors are in jail. Okay? Could come. I don't know how fast. I don't know how rapid. I'm not trying to shock you or scare you. But, but, but come on. I just read an article a couple days ago about two girls that were, that were uh, killed because they refused to marry terrorists. And talk about persecution. Come on, Obamacare is not persecution in the American church. Okay? It might be bad policy. It's not persecution. We look silly on Facebook, don't we? Oh, we're under persecution. Stop it. You haven't traveled. Okay? Sit with Tim Maddox in the last service over there on Cyprus. Tilling hard ground. And we're over here complaining Thousand Oaks is tough. You know why church is hard in America? Because everything is so easy. That's actually why it's hard. It's because it's so easy here. It's tough to get the gospel, the good news, into people that think everything's already good. We're fine. This is epic. Here's the good news. Yeah, it kind of pales. I got a vacation house. I got vacations. I got business. I got a paycheck. I got houses. I got cars. I got the latest Lexus. I got this. I got that. Right? Gospel is tough here for a different reason. And it's always because we struggle with identity. And so Peter is coming through this epistle and in the first chapter, and especially at the end of the first chapter, he's really exhorting them on the eternal glory and character of God's word. And, and not to boast, but at Calvary Chapel, we, we, we kind of do this well, right? The majority of Jesus's public ministry was preaching and teaching. So the majority of our weekend and week out services is preaching and teaching, we preach and teach in third service. I got no time constraints, right? It's game on till like four o'clock, okay? And so he's, he's just got done exhorting them on, on, on the scriptures, on the glory of Jesus speaking through the Holy Spirit to his church in a timeless message. This spoke and encouraged the first century church under the boot of Rome, and it'll speak to Thousand Oaks 2015 under the boot of comfort. And the boot of luxury and wealth and affluence and complacency and vacation planning and wealth creation and portfolio management. And it'll encourage us because he says this. What he's going to do is he's going to exhort us on the word and then the part, part we're going to take a look at, he knows, he knows that we listen and we hear teaching through lenses. Okay? Like right now, if you're a business guy, you might be wondering, hey, how does it, how's this, okay, this guy's up here, he's, you know, He's kind, of, he's kind of rambunctious. How is this discernment going to affect my business tomorrow? How is it going to affect how I do that, right? I hope, at least I kind of hope that's your heart. Or if you're a mom, like what, what, what sort of lens is that, that, is that sermon coming through? How does it exhort me through the lens of being a mom or being a single or being married or being um, in the public sector or the private sector, being widow, being divorced? Being, and we sort of start to take things in through the lens of our identity, don't we? Like no one comes here and just wipes the slate clean. Like I'm just a clean slate. Just pour it on me. We're coming through the lens of experience and past and history and profession and all that sort of stuff, aren't we? But here's the problem. We've often, as we know, we've often wrapped up our identity in worldly things. We've allowed the world to tell us who we are. And, and, and Peter, via the Holy Spirit, knows this is going to happen. And what he's going to do at the beginning of chapter two is he's got to do some identity work. He's got to tell us who we are. It doesn't matter who your ex-wife says you are. It doesn't matter who your ex-husband says you are. It matters who God says you are. That's what matters. doesn't matter who your boss says you are. doesn't matter who your kids, who your friends, who your family. It could be good things. It could be bad things. It's not who you are. You are who Jesus says you are. And, but he knows that he's got to go through some identity work. 
And so to encourage you, I want to take a look at three major things that Peter via the Holy Spirit says, this is your, now, this is your new identity. As believers, this is your identity. If you're a non-believer here today, I hope it just simply encourages you to give you a perspective of how Christians are to view our identity. Okay? That there is a loving, gracious God that sees us in these ways. Not as sinners, not as wretched and disgusting and could barely make it, you know. It's just, this is how God views us through the lens of Jesus Christ. And so Peter's going to do some identity work here in the second chapter And so let's get into it. It says this, we'll start in verse four. We've got to set a foundation here before we can get to our identity. It says this, it says, coming to him, that's Jesus, as to a living stone, rejected indeed by men, but chosen by God and precious. You need to know, first and foremost, Jesus was chosen by God as his first son. Jesus is precious to God. All good theology begins, is sustained by, and is consummated with Jesus. I'm not starting the sermon talking about you. We'll get to us. We're going to talk about Jesus. You know, first and foremost, Jesus was chosen. Jesus is precious before the Father. And so he says he is chosen by God and precious. Verse 5, you also as living stones, Christians, church, hello, Living stones, here we go. That's the language he uses for us. You are being built up a spiritual house. Being built, is that past or present? Present. present. We, need to start, we need to stop here. We need to camp here for a second. You need to know that Jesus is currently and actively building his church. Some of you have showed up to study Jesus as purely a historical figure, not an ongoing living king. Tell me about what Jesus did and when he's coming back. And we've created this void, this chapter in the church's history where Jesus died a couple thousand years ago and he hasn't returned yet. So we're just simply waiting. Just go to, just go to work, get a paycheck, pay your bills, show up to church. Got my get out of free hell card or get out of hell free card. Get out of free hell. <laughs> You're like, do you have to pay? I don't get it. <laughs> get out of hell free card. And we've created this chapter of complacency in the church. And we're just simply waiting. To hell with the world. They can do whatever they want. Just get here, collect, right? And just wait. He says, being built up a spiritual house. And again, take a look at Acts chapter 1. Jesus says nothing about, hey, I hope you like my ministry, because that's it. What does he say? The things that Jesus began to do and teach. Began to do and say. See, Jesus' ascension was not the end of his ministry. It was the transfer of it. He says, it's better for you that I go. It's actually beneficial, and and that pains us. Like as a pastor, I'm like, Jesus, don't go. Can you imagine the disciples? As he's like ascending, and this was before balloons, so that was freaky for them. It was like, hey, what what are you talking about? You got to think about this stuff from the human perspective, right? (laughs) That was before balloons. Oh, man, freak you out. Jesus is going to say, hey, this is better. This is better. I'm going to send the Holy Spirit. And so Jesus wasn't ending his ministry. He was transferring his ministry. His power wasn't ending. It was transferring to his church. His life wasn't over. His life was being put into the church via the Holy Spirit. Jesus' ministry, life, and power continues today in you. It's true. It's just whether or not you're fighting against it. 
It's the only question. Jesus is going to get it done, by the way. It's just whether or not we're fighting against it in our laziness and our complacency. And so the transfer of Jesus's ministry takes place. And so Jesus is the one that is currently building his church, not pastors, not people. Jesus is building his church, but he wants us to be a part of it. It's like, it's like take your daughter to work day. Now, does the parent need that daughter to complete their job? No, but they want her alongside, right? They want the boy to come alongside, help that. Like my boys help me all the time. I, like, I don't even know anything about motorcycles, but if I'm like working, tightening some stuff too, like Ethan comes over, he's like, I'll help. I'm like, come help me. I'm not, I don't even know what I'm doing. He's down there just like, oh, we'll try, you know? He wants to be a part of dad's work. And I'm just trying to get open a saddlebag that's somehow like locked shut or something like that. I don't necessarily need him, but I want him involved. God doesn't need you, but he wants you involved. And so you just got to know that Jesus, and it says, I think in Psalm 127, it says, unless the Lord builds the house, the people labor in vain. There is labor. And if you were here a couple weeks ago when I spoke on the gospel at work, there's labor. Labor is good. It's pre-sin. It's pre-fall. Working. He wants us involved, active. But Jesus is the one building his church. My question is, are you a part of the building or are you just here to watch? Are you just here to show up and check the gauges, see if they still got donuts? No donuts. Tithing must be done. They probably need my money to get donuts again, right? Are you involved in the building of Jesus's church or are you just simply here to watch? Volunteer opportunities, praying for the church, serving the church, giving graciously the church. Are you involved in the building of Jesus's church or are you just a spectator? You might've made the team, but are you sitting on the bench? Are you on the field? And so... We need to know that because it says are being built up a spiritual house. We are being built. There is work, there is labor, there is structure under Jesus being built up a holy priesthood. It says to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God. It's dangerous if we put a period there. We go super weird and freaky if we put a, a period there. Being built up a spiritual house to give spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God. Period. If it ends there, it goes south. We start coming up with all sorts of weird things that are acceptable sacrifices to God. But it says this, what? Through Jesus Christ. The only acceptable sacrifices before God the Father are the ones that go through Jesus Christ. Those are the only sacrifices. When your work is in and through the power of Jesus Christ, that's, an, that's a pleasing sacrificial work. Even if it's a quote secular job. Jesus had a secular job for 18 years. Through Jesus, offerings, sacrifices of his people as we're built up are pleasing to God, but it must be under the banner for the name and the fame of Jesus or it's dirty rags, as the Bible says. It's just mindless legalism. He doesn't need your works, but he wants your work and he wants it through Jesus. That's the key. So verse six, it says, therefore it is also contained in the scriptures. And he hearkens back to Isaiah it says, behold, I lay in Zion, a chief cornerstone. Who is that? Not you. Thank goodness. Right? Imagine if you were supposed to be the cornerstone on this whole thing was built. No man. Elect precious again, chosen and precious. Jesus elect chosen beforehand, precious before the father. And he who believes in him, that's Jesus will by no means be put to shame. Verse seven, therefore, to you who believe he is precious. 
And this is just simply, this is one of those gauges that you have in your life from scripture, from God himself, to know, to know, to know that you're in Christ is that every day, by the grace of God, Jesus becomes a little more precious to you. Every day, every day on the motorcycle, I think a little bit more about Jesus. Probably because I'm coming close to meeting him sometimes, right? Every day at work, I'm thinking a little bit more about Jesus. Every day with my two boys, I'm thinking a little bit more about Jesus. Every day with Carissa, I'm thinking a little bit more about Jesus. Every day at work, I'm just, it's just, it's, it's starting to really saturate. Jesus is becoming far more precious. I have far more appreciation for Jesus every single day. And it's kind of like marriage, which is the grand paradigm of the Bible, right? Look, there's sometimes where you have big lurches forward. You go from here way over there in terms of Jesus. And you had those like when you were dating, right? And you were just engaged and just married. You had this big lurch. But, but married, practical, understand. I mean, married people will tell you it's a daily this, right? It doesn't excite the young kids, but it's true, right? Every day. I do premarital too. It's like, hey, you, you guys love how you feel? That's going to change. <laughs> They're over there. Like, what? Right? It's going to change. Love's not primarily a feeling. What? That didn't feel good on the cross. That was the ultimate act of love, right? That was a decision. Love has to be, sometimes you gotta wake up and just, especially the ladies, they know she gotta decide to love him that day. <laughs> right? Gentlemen, we're happy they decide, right? Amen, yeah. She decided again, right? <laughs> okay? It's that decision incrementally. It's the same thing with Jesus. It's the same thing with your faith. Every day has become a little bit more precious for you. People tell me, like, what do I do? How do I, get, how do I grow? How do I, and I said, just learn something new about Jesus every day. I dare you to do that. Could you imagine at the end of the year, you learn 365 new things about Jesus? Some of you are like, I'm just trying to get one big thing for the year. No. Every day, a little more precious. Yeah? Every day, Jesus becomes a little more precious. And says, so, so to those who believe, he is precious. But to those who are disobedient, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. Because here's, here's the deal. In ancient architecture, the cornerstone was the first piece laid, yes? We've kind of lost this a little bit in modern, in modern architecture. That first cornerstone was everything. That was it. That was the pivot point. It's exactly what it is. It's, it's the, the stone in the corner. You don't have to go to seminary to figure that one out, okay? And on everything, everything that that building will ever become will be laid out in respect to that cornerstone. Everything in your life should be laid out, hinged and anchored on the cornerstone of what Christ has done. Everything, everything, spreadsheets at work, email, family time, alone time, everything. And, and, and one of the most crucial aspects of that cornerstone was that it brought the first two walls together. That's the epic picture that Jesus says, I will be, I will be the stone by which the Jews and the Gentiles know salvation. And the reason it's a stumbling block is because, here, here, look, here's the honest truth. Jews didn't like it. They didn't like to hear that. We like to be told what? You are special. There's no one like you. God probably couldn't even use anyone apart from you. Those guys are disgusting and terrible. They're the Gentiles. They're heathens. But you, you're epic. Those are the, the porn addicts. Those are, those are the, the pornographers. Those are, the, those are the, the sinners, the drug addicts, the alcoholics. That's, whoa, whoa. But you, you went to church your whole life. You live in the Caneo. It's not LA. We're like higher elevation in everything. It's a great metaphor, Right? And we start thinking that that's, this, is the place for the, this is the place for the clean people. Jesus says, this is just simply a hospital 
or the pastors make you healthy enough to get up and help other sick people. That's about it. Jesus be that cornerstone. He says, look, I will be the one now that defines you. I will bring the Jew and the Gentile to a saving knowledge of the living God. That's the cornerstone. And they just didn't like it. They want to be God's people. They thought that was it. This is our deal. This is us chosen. And God still has work to do with them. Don't write off Israel by any means. That's anti-scripture. Their rejection of God is not final, the Bible says. But Jew and Gentile, raise your hand if you're not Jewish. Uh, Rita's like the only one keeping her hand down. <laughs> I, know that. She's like, I am. I'm good both ways. <laughs> right? There's a room full of non-Jews, and that's all Gentile meant. Praise Jesus. He said, you know what? Both walls will come and be hinged on me. Amen? And so now we are God's people as well. So that's what it means. simply a stone of stumbling, a rock of offense. They stumble, it says at the end of verse eight, because disobedient to the word to which also they were appointed, but you, but you church. And so Peter via the Holy Spirit is writing to the persecuted church in the first century. And he's writing to a church in an affluent suburb north of LA in 2015, knowing that both would have identity issues on very different planes, but the same eternal truth will apply. And so this is where Peter is going to set up three very large lenses through which you should view all things as believers, as now grafted in, as the Bible says, grafted into this promise. It's not like God's promise to Israel ended and it's over. It says that we've now been grafted in and that promise is continuing. And so as believers, as God's people, as Christians, if you're the church, he says, here's three, and there's lots in scripture. We could do 48,000 years on identity. And the whole book of Ephesians is about identity. But Peter knows he has to do identity work here. The Holy Spirit knows that we need identity work. We need the proper understanding of who God says we are before we dare go out and tell people who God says they are. And so he says this first and foremost, but you are a chosen generation. Now we've done, we've done a disservice to the word generation in American culture. We've made it primarily about what? Age, right? Age. What generation are you? You baby boomer, right? You Gen X, which I think I am by like a year. You Gen Y, Gen Z. Are you a millennial? Whatever that means, right? Which means you just don't care about anything. <laughs> Apparently. Okay. Millennial. Look, I, I read Inc. Magazine. I read Entrepreneur Magazine. They are pumping out content. How to hire, how to attract, how to manage, how to deal with millennials because it's a generational thing. God says, look around, do it. Be, be awkward, look around. God says, God says, look, all ages, he says, this is my generation. This are the people I've, these are the people that I've chosen to move as a trajectory through history. See, a lot of times we put that on the younger generation. Oh, what's the younger generation gonna do for the workforce? What are they gonna do for business? What are they gonna do for the church? What's the next generation? What's this generation gonna do? This is our chosen generation. And think about the times in your life that you've been chosen for something, right? In high school, maybe you got chosen for, to be on sports, a sport team. Or maybe you went to public school like me and they had to let you play, right? <clears throat> you were chosen for that sports team. Maybe you were chosen for a theater spot. Maybe you were chosen to fit, sit first chair in orchestra. 
or in band. You're chosen for a job. I just went through this last summer. I was unemployed for eight weeks. I left my position because my, my, my position was going a place that wouldn't have been advantageous for my career. Um, great, great company, Christian owners. They gave me a severance package, which they didn't have to. They blessed us so that my family could you know, survive my unemployment. Right? Finally got a call back from a company in Calabasas. Called, did an interview right there on the phone. I was like in shorts outside Gold's Gym, like trying to talk business, like people walking around the theater and stuff. And, and, and he says, look, I got about 250 resumes. There's a director position, about 250 people coming up from LA trying to nab these jobs. Oh man, so, you know, secured the in, in-person interview, went in, did an in-person interview with the president, came back another time, came in to meet with the COO, the director of IT. Then he had me put together a full-scale marketing plan for the whole year for their biggest brand. Um, this guy's either a genius or he just got a free plan out of me, right? <laughs> genius because he's not going to have to manage me if he does hire me, he's just like, do your plan, right? But he also might have just gotten a $90,000 marketing plan out of me just in the interview process. Christian guy though, right? And the day I got the call, you've been, you've been selected. You've been 250 resumes. Not because I'm epic, right? It's just because I know how to Instagram really well, right? So, <laughs> digital marketing, right? I'm one of those guys that get paid to Instagram in case you hate those people. I am one of them. But, but I got chosen. But notice my response was, oh, thank goodness. Now I don't have to do anything. Has that ever been your response to being chosen? You've been chosen for the sports team. Oh, good. I'm going home. What happens when you've been chosen? The work starts, right? I got it. in the military. One more analogy. Because again, we got to at least four. And so I was in the military. I was in the Marine Corps. I got chosen. So our unit got selected to participate in a joint operation. And then of that unit, I was one of four United States Marines Junior Marine at that. We had two junior Marines, a senior staff NCO, and an officer. And I was just a Lance Corporal at the time. Chosen to go on the largest joint operation in the United Kingdom. It spanned Poole, England, the very southern, all the way to Cape Wrath, Scotland. Okay? And we knew what this thing would involve. We knew that this would be intense training. We knew that this would be hiking up and down the Scottish Highlands. And it was. It was one of those classic like poster moments. By the way, 98% of the military is just boredom and standing around. And it's not all like this. All right, but this was one of those times that it was packed up, suited up in vans, driving from southern England all the way into the, the Scottish Highlands. We were probably about, I don't know, 80 miles from the coast of Cape Wrath. Middle of the night, we're driving pack, past Loch Ness, you know, Loch Ness Monster, I didn't see her. Um, and so we're heading up, we get to the Scottish Highlands. One of those things, they pull onto this dirt road and you're, you're doing this and you're with a couple of Marines and you stop and there's a bunch of ruins. You're like, this is epic, like an old Scottish, like this and that. They open up the van door, they chuck the packs, they say, get out. I'm like, all right, you get out. They throw a map on the ground, they say, you have two days to be in Cape Wrath and they drive off. I got, I got like a canteen and a sandwich. You're like... Epic. We didn't even have fresh water. We had to purify it in the streams. We had to hike up and down the Scottish Highlands. We had 80-pound packs. We had to go all the way up. It was a joint operation. There were ships coming in from, I directed a ship from Turkey. So I was a naval gunfire spotter, one from Germany. We had air on station. We had all this sort of stuff, purifying in the streams, up and all this sort of stuff. Do you think when we got chosen for that, they're like, all right, so just relax, and then we'll see how it goes? I started training like crazy before that thing. I'm going to go over there and make myself a fool in front of the British Royal Marines. Are you kidding me? I do some work now, right? And notice being chosen for a job, being chosen for sports, it invigorates you, it pushes you forward, it doesn't set you back on your heels. How much cooler is it that the God of you, look, my medals are in my, my garage. Apart from somewhat average sermon analogies, they don't do me any good anymore. 
My military time has passed. It's over. Your sports time may have passed. Heck, your business is going to end at some point. Your job's going to switch or change. How much more epic is it that you've been chosen as a generation under God's sovereign rule to move through history to point to him? And so being chosen should encourage you, should excite you, push you forward. And I say, well, he chose me. I'm good. We'll just wait for him to come back now. I'm in. When's he coming back? Heard it's crazy. Can't wait. <laughs> right? You've read Revelation 19. You know it's crazy. Spielberg flick on steroids, right? No, we've been chosen to be part of the building of his church, to be part of building what Jesus is doing in the Conejo Valley, despite our intent to to want to go back on our heels and just relax and kick back and say, I'm fine. I'm saved. Good. We've been chosen. It says this, Ephesians 1, 4 through 5 says, just as he chose us in him, that's Jesus, before the foundation of the world, before you existed, you were chosen. Before you had a conscience to make decisions, you were chosen. Here to tell you, the gospel is not that you chose God. It's that God chose you. It says that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestined us. Don't freak out about that. Predestined means to know beforehand to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself according to the good pleasure of his will. It says in 1 John four nineteen, we love him because he first loved us. And then Jesus himself, John 15, 16, looks at the disciples. Those are the guys, they made the Bible. They made it in there. He looks at the disciples straight in the eye and he says, you did not choose me. Disciples left their family, left their business, left their comfort, left all that. And he's like, you didn't choose me. This is not your doing. You're not here because you're epic. He says, but I chose you. Church, Jesus chose you. For those of you that have accepted Christ into your heart via the Holy Spirit, God chose you to be a part of his generation. It says, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and wait for me to return. Is that what it says? No, it says bear fruit. To wait, to, to just relax until I get back. No, to bear fruit. To bear fruit. Jesus says, you are his workmanship created for good works. We're not saved by works, I know, but once you're saved, you'll want to do them. You'll want to do them. Bear fruit that your fruit should remain, that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give you. And so again, keep in mind, Jesus' ministry did not end with his ascension. It was transferred. I don't know why Christians are walking around like we don't have a game plan. You read and study the life, the ministry, the death, burial, resurrection of Jesus Christ. You look at it in historical context and that's good, great, and grand. How many of you reading it as a game plan for today? That he showed you what we're supposed to be. You notice he got the whole Christian thing right? Right? Have you noticed that? Like, who, who did the Christian thing well? I think Jesus did it pretty epic. He did it pretty well. And so if he lived it perfectly and he says, now you are to be the administrators of my ministry, our life then reflects his life. Is that, is that practical enough? Good theology should always be practical. Jesus says, I'll show you and then I'll ask you to do it. And we're like, I don't know what to do. What's a Christian about in 2015? It's about looking like Jesus. And so on the continuation of his ministry, Jesus said, most assuredly, I say to you, he who believes in me 
that the works I do, he will do also. What about last week? Like how many things did you do that Jesus did? Right, you went to work. That's good. Jesus went to work 18 years, secular job, right? Check this out though. You ever thought back? You're just like, man, I wish I could do what Jesus did. Who's thought that? Raise your hand. Be honest. Be honest. It's a third service. You guys could be honest, right? None of you. None of you just didn't want to do anything like Jesus. All right, well, I'll pray for us and we'll get out of here. All right, we'll see. How many of you want to do, some, you want to, you want to do stuff like Jesus? How many of you think you can do better things than Jesus? And greater works than these he will do because I go to my father. Jesus says, you'll do more. From the words of Jesus himself. And all you wanted to be like, oh, he's the king. He's so, he could, I could never just sort. And he says, check us out. I'm going to send the Holy Spirit. This is what happens. 100% man, 100% God in the incarnation. Yes? 100% God, 100% man. And in submission to the father as 100% man, he was pretty much restricted to the area of Galilee. Yes? Notice he didn't just like pop up in China real quick. It's like, hey, he couldn't, could he? He wouldn't have been 100% man if he did that. He didn't walk through walls. Why? He wouldn't have been 100% man. He didn't always avail himself to his divine attributes. 100% man, for the most part, he was, he was restricted to the area of Galilee. He was one man that needed sleep. He worked. He went and ministered when he could. He ministered, apart from his, his ministry in his work as a carpenter, he, he was in public ministry three years. Okay. A lot of us put Jesus, like maybe what do you put him in forties, fifties when he's on the cross? I'm 33. He was my age. This is the age Jesus was when he was crucified. Three years after he began, I told Rob, he, he asked me to teach for the first time when I was 30 and that's his fault. And then now I'm 33 and Rob literally said, good luck this year. Right? <laughs> no, I didn't make myself out to be second coming. No, no, no. But check this out. Three years. He had three years limited to the area of Galilee right? Maybe 18 hours a day tops. And he says, but here's the thing. I was, I was in the incarnation limited, but he says, when the Holy spirit comes as much as I did, imagine when that goes billions. Imagine when that goes billions. Yeah. You better believe it. The Christian church, Jesus just said, can and will do better things than him himself. If that doesn't encourage you wrong church, Find, a, just find somewhere else to go or they're just sort of, you show up and that's all you need. Jesus says, you're going to do better things than me. That's what the church is supposed to be about. Doing massive gospel work around the world modeled by Jesus. And so he says, you'll do more things. And then Jesus says this in Acts 18. You shall receive power, dunamis. It's the word where we get dynamite. You'll know it'll happen. No one's like curious if dynamite exploded. Like, what was that? I heard something. I can't, nah, it's fine. Right? You know when that explodes. I, don't, I normally don't do too many war stories, but first time I, got, I was in combat, we had, a, we had a car bomber come in with a, with a trunk full of C4 and dynamite. Blew himself up right in the car in front of me. You know. You know something happened. When the Holy Spirit comes, you'll know something happened. When the church is on fire, you'll know something happened. He says, when the, when the Holy Spirit comes... The power of the Holy Spirit has come upon you. You shall witness to me in Jerusalem and Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. He just says the people close to you and the people far away from you. That's who the church will reach and everyone in between. That's how Jesus says this thing goes billions wide over thousands of years. The church will do better things than me. 
It's pretty epic coming from Jesus himself. If that doesn't excite you, you might join the wrong team. I don't know what else I can do to get you up off the bench and get on the field. He says, it's going to be more epic because you're going to be infused with my life, my ministry, my power via the Holy Spirit. It's going to go billions. It's going to go global. And so we are his chosen generation and therefore we approach, listen to this, three things. We're going to do Jesus, church, and life, how you approach this. You approach Jesus, creator God, humbly and poor in spirit. Why? Knowing that he chose us first. Humbly, poor in spirit, knowing that it was nothing of you. The gospel is not that you're epic. The gospel is that Jesus is epic and he chose you and even in the state of your depravity. And so humbly and poor in spirit, knowing that he chose us. So we approach Jesus and we approach church and life intentionally, not as spectators, intentionally. Why? Because we are the continuation of Jesus's ministry on earth. And he says, if you thought my life was good, if you thought my life was perfect, wait till you see when Jesus goes billions. And so... We are the chosen generation. It says we are a royal priesthood. What was the most significant role of a priest in the Old Testament? Arguably, people bring their sin, they bring their divorce, they bring their abuse, their molestation, their addiction, their sin, their cursing, their lying, their cheating, their stealing. They bring that to the priest and what does he do? He gets saturated in it. He hears it all. He takes it all in, doesn't he? Takes it all in. And he takes it Where? takes it into the temple, he takes it into the Holy of the Holies before God and he sacrifices an animal and he covers that sin and blood. Those sacrifices could never atone for sin, but they could cover sin and it would point forward to him who could defeat sin. But the priest would, would, would bear the weight of that sin and would take it upon him and he would take it before God and he would cover that sin. Now, we can't do that for our friends. We, we can't do what Jesus did for our friends. Jesus comes into our mess. Jesus comes into our mess, became our sin. The Bible doesn't say he was a metaphor for your sin. It doesn't say he symbolized your sin. He was a picture of your sin. It says that he became your sin. That's why, Jesus, that's why God the Father turned away from him. Is because he became your sin. This was not a metaphor. This was Jesus on the cross becoming everything you've ever said and done in an affront to the living God. And Jesus became it so God turned away. And that eternal communion in the triune God was broken for the first and last time so that when that community was broken, God's people could be inserted. And God's community was broken. He turned from him and he put Jesus to death as your sin, as my sin. That's why God's no longer angry. That's why Jesus said, take this cup from me because it wasn't a cross he was facing or a beating. It was the wrath of God to be poured out on us and it was poured out on him. So God's not angry with you anymore. God's not mad. And so Jesus comes in as our high priest. He comes into the mess of the world, becomes our sin. He takes it to the father and becomes the sacrifice. Hebrews 4, 14 through 16 says, seeing that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the son of God, let us hold fast our confession for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are. Have you thought about that? 
Look, if you're trying to come up with a fake religion, you don't write that God knows exactly what it's like to be tempted in every way. Though without sin, Jesus was on the verge of sin constantly in that temptation. Though he never sinned, Jesus felt all the same temptation that you do. That's why he can come before us as a great high priest and can empathize and he knows. I know it's hard. I know it's brutal. I know it's messy down there. In Romans 8, 34, oh, I'm sorry. And it says, but was in all points tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Romans 8, 34 says this, who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died and furthermore is also risen, who even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. And so let's be clear. Look, we cannot become the sin of our friends and we can't take it away. We don't need to. It's already been done and ours wouldn't have been sufficient anyways. But we can go into the mess of the world and we spent a lot of time in the Conejo Valley keeping the mess away, haven't we? That's for LA. That's not here. It's not, it's, it's not dirty, this, right? People are getting all mad that there's like traffic on the 101. They're like, this is not the town that I live in. They're adding a lane, relax, okay? <laughs> By the way, I'm from Minnesota. They need to bring in the construction crews from Minnesota. Those guys can fix anything statewide in three months. <laughs> the snow's coming. These guys... <laughs> Sorry if there's any California construction workers, but look, two years to do a a railway or or a highway? Are you kidding me? Get the guys from Wisconsin. They'll do it over the summer. I'm telling you, it's crazy. But all this dirty, all this craziness, we're like, that's LA, that's not us. And then then we've just got this massive rise of heroin in the Conejo Valley. I don't want to hear about it. They rescue a girl from sex trafficking in Newberry Park. That's not us. That's not us. That's China. That's Thailand. That's weird. That's crazy. It's messy. And we're not going to stay sterile very long up here. And we got our own issues with comfort, right? And Jesus said, there's one group of people that it's hilarious, the idea that they'd get into heaven. Who is that? Rich people. Raise your hand if you have a refrigerator. (laughs) Seriously, raise your hand if you have a refrigerator. Welcome to the 1% of people around the world. You are rich. No, 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 you haven't seen my, I don't need to. I got a little three bedroom condo, bills up the wall, paycheck to paycheck. And I have to know that I'm part of the rich because God knew it would be tough. He's like, it's so crazy. He made a, Jesus made a joke about it. It's like taking this disgusting, slobbering, humpy, hairy camel and slamming him through the eye of a needle. That's how tough it's going to be for rich people to get into heaven. Why? Because we're judged differently. No, because we don't think we need to be safe from anything. Pretty epic. I got a great job, great house. I live in SoCal. I'm right next to Malibu. Right? I got a vacation house. I got vacation. I got time. I got a 401k. I'm fine. It's epic. I heard a pastor put it this way. He said, the, good, the gospel means good news. News can only be good if it goes into dark spaces. So we've just tried to remove the darkness. Everything's bright. I don't, the good news doesn't sound as sweet. When we've, when we've, we've told ourselves that we're, we're living the good life. This is one of the most dangerous places to live in the world. You may be thinking of physical safety. That's fine. That's not how I, I view safety. I'm talking about the safety of eternity with God. We're in a very dangerous place, Canal Valley. We don't long for the next life. We're just pretty content with this one. It's a dangerous place to live. Dangerous place. And so we can't take away the sins of our friends, but we can go into the mess. 
Think about your friend that needs to talk. Think about your friend that's struggling right now. Marriage is being torn apart. Kids are rebelling on drugs, alcoholism. You go in there as that royal priesthood. You usher them into the presence of God because that's what Jesus did and you're reflecting him. So we reflect Jesus in a time of need and we intercede on behalf of our family, friends, and coworkers as Jesus does for us currently. Therefore, we approach Jesus. Remember, Jesus' church in life. We approach Jesus, our high priest, boldly, knowing that he desires for us grace, getting what you don't deserve, and mercy, not getting what you deserve in times of need. And so we approach church and life as meek servants, willing to take the gospel into the dark places and bring the same kind of grace and mercy that Jesus has shown us. Jesus always went into the dark places. He was never at the popular parties. Never at the popular parties. He hung out with prostitutes and tax collectors. Holy, tempted in every way, but yet without sin. And so as the royal priesthood that pushes that ministry forward, we do the same. And then it says this, it says this, check this out, it says a holy nation. How many of you are stoked to be Americans? Right, some of you are like, this guy, it's always a trick question. I don't know. <laughs> Is that bad? <laughs> like, are you excited? I'm excited. Hey, I fought for you crazies, right? Come on. Who's, who's excited? You're pretty, you're happy about it, right? Yeah. Right? And what, what is a nation? What's a nation? I looked into definitions. A lot of them always have to do with like, you know, ancestry and stuff. I don't even think that because like America of all places is a massive melting pot. If I had to boil it down for an operating definition, I would just say common ideals under common leadership. Does that sound good? Like even if you're a tribe or a sovereign nation within a, you got common ideals, common leadership, right? Holy nation. Now what does holy mean? Set apart. What does Pharisee mean? separated one. Big difference. Jesus was holy, was he not? But notice he always fought with the Pharisees. So Jesus was set apart, but he was not separated. In fact, he's the opposite of the God of Gnosticism. He came right into that mess. Came right into that mess on a cosmic rescue mission. The perfect, perfect son of God, the first missionary, right? Coming from one culture to another. Jesus comes in, Holy, set apart, but not separated. Set apart within. And so in the Old Testament, God used who as his people? Israel, an actual bona fide nation. He set them up. He said, these are going to be your laws. These are going to be your civil laws. These are going to be your ceremonial laws. They're going to be under the banner of my moral law. You're going to have ancestry. You're going to have documents. You're going to have, you're going to have all this. You're going to be my nation. Jesus comes in. He's now the cornerstone. He says, look around. He says, this is my nation. You're to be set apart within, at your job, in your family, with your friends. Set apart, not separated, set apart, but within. Coming into the dirt with the gospel, shining the light in dark places. He says, so you are the nation. Jesus comes and he says, what about the law? He looks to all of Israel and he says, what about the law? He says, I have not come to destroy it, but to fulfill the law. He says, look, God's people are no longer defined by your civil law. You're no longer defined by your ancestry. You're no longer defined by your ethnicity, your ceremonial practices, your priesthood, your governments, your theocracy. Jesus says, I define my people now. If you are in Christ, you are part of his holy nation. 
And the church now moves through this point in time to point to the second coming of Jesus. And so Israel moved through the Old Testament. Jesus came and says, I fulfilled the law. And now I am the chief cornerstone. And now Jew and Gentile, if you're found in Christ, we are now the holy nation. That should excite you way more than it should excite you to be an American. I, I, this could be for another sermon. I struggle with American exceptionalism in the church. I do. It's not that we haven't done some really cool things that other countries haven't, but that assumes that those countries and what they haven't or have done is the standard. It's absurd. Have we done some cool things? Sure. Sure. Great. Good, great, and grand. I don't see God coming down and say, well, I'm down with America. I like Israel. No. The ground at the foot of the cross is level. There's two buckets, in Christ and outside of Christ. That's it. That's it. Doesn't mean that he doesn't set up authorities. It doesn't mean that we're glad to live in a nation like this. Are you kidding me? Nowhere else I'd rather raise my boys. That there aren't, that God hasn't established all positions of authority, layers of protection for the flourishing of humankind to be sure. Government's a part of God's common grace. It can be experienced by everyone. But how much more excited should we be about God's ideals than American ideals? Because sometimes I'll tell you, American ideals fly in the face of the gospel. I read a book called Reclaiming Your Faith from the American Dream by David Platt. Don't read it. I gave away half my wardrobe after I read that book. I started dumping junk. I started just purging from our incessant need to just accumulate stuff. It's a whole nother sermon, but we are now the holy nation. My question is, how much more do you focus on God's ideals than the American ideals? Because those change left, right, and center. Kidding me? Change left, right, and center. Unchanging and eternal. God's nation. Here, look around. Look at this awkward group of people. Super awkward. Nothing else in common but Jesus. Right? So we are the holy nation. Therefore, we approach Jesus, our king, in glad submission as the one who alone sets us apart. You are defined by Jesus. You are who Jesus says you are. And he says you are a chosen generation. You are a royal priesthood. You are my holy nation. So we approach Jesus in glad submission. We approach church and life in unity with other Christians. You're going to hear a lot about unity this year. Get used to it or find another church. Unity. Right? You're like preaching unity. You just told me to leave, right? And so <laughs> some of you didn't catch that. You're like, Stay here, right? Let's <laughs> get used to it. Right? Unity, unity. We approach church and life in unity with Christians, with common ideals and common governance under the banner of Jesus Christ. That's our highest set of ideals. That is our form of identity. It doesn't come from being an American. No, it's a part of life on earth. Who we are is who God says we are. We here are a nation set apart within a nation. And it says this, I'll give you God's motive for this whole thing. It's not so that you look good, okay? That's the best part. It's not so that you look good. It says this, and uh, halfway through verse nine, it says, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him, that's Jesus, who called you. Keep in mind, you did not choose him. He chose you to proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into the marvelous light. That's Jesus. That's what he's done. And make no mistake, it was dark. 
We don't often think of ourselves as that. We don't often look back in horror that at one point God saw us as enemies. I I was in the Marine Corps. What if I told you 200,000 United States Marines have declared you to be an enemy? You scared? You find a way to Fiji, don't you? Like you're out. What if I told you at some point, the cosmic God of the universe that holds all things in the span of his hand, by whom all things consist, if Jesus flinches, the whole universe implodes. See, at one point, you were his enemy. That's dark. But in order for good news to be good, it has to go into dark places. It says this in Colossians. It says, and you who were once alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, Yet now he, that's Jesus, has reconciled in the body of his flesh through death. When Jesus became your sin and God poured out his wrath and put him to death to present you holy, set apart, blameless, means you're not guilty anymore, and above reproach in his sight. If indeed you continue in the faith, grounded and steadfast, and are not moved away from the hope of the gospel which you heard, which was preached to every creature under the earth. See, every false gospel is about what you can do for God. The true gospel is about what God has done for you. Every false gospel on the planet is about the things you can do to get right with God. The true gospel says there was nothing you could do, so God himself did it. You were tumbling under the waves and God jumped into the water and said, you can't save yourself, I will. And he pulled you up, like I've had to do with my boys at the beach before. Ill-equipped to save themselves in that moment. Totally depraved, hell-bent on destruction. And God comes and says, I choose you. Every single one of you, if you're in Christ, you are a chosen generation pushing forward to the coming Christ. You are a royal priesthood that takes the gospel into the dark places for your friends, your family, your coworkers. You bring that light because it's dark. It looks amazing in the darkness, but you're not afraid to go there to be tempted yet without sin and a holy nation now defined by Jesus and who he says you are, not what your friends think, not what your parents think, though it may be good. They may think you're epic. But knowing that you have been chosen by the one true living king, all of this, again, is to his praise. That's the arc of the whole Bible, soli deo gloria. It's one of the five pillars of the Protestant Reformation. To God alone be the glory. The Bible is explicit. He will share his glory with no one. That includes Christians. God is ferociously about his glory. He loves you because it serves his glory. He blesses you because it serves his glory. He cares for you. He saved you because it serves his glory, not because you deserved it. And it says this, to proclaim the praises of him who called you out of the darkness into his marvelous light, who once were not a people, <clears throat> but are now the people of God. Let's, let's be honest. Look around real fast. Let's be honest. If we didn't have Jesus, this group wouldn't be hanging out. Some of you are a little mad I buttoned the top one, right? You're like, forget this. This guy's weird. <laughs> I had someone after the last service, like, dude, I was thinking about the top button the whole time. <laughs> I'm glad you said it because it's freaking me out. <laughs> Look around. We don't hang out, right? We wouldn't hang out, but we have Jesus. So here we are, right? 
This is a community. This is his chosen generation. This is his royal priesthood. This is his holy nation for his glory. It says you are not his people, but you are now the people of God and have obtained mercy, but now you have obtained mercy. See, before Jesus, there was wrath, sin, fear, death. With Jesus, wrath will not come upon you. Sin will not beset you. Fear will not reign over you and death will not overcome you. It says in Romans 8 that we are more than conquerors in Christ Jesus, a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people to proclaim his excellencies of the one who pulled us from darkness into his light. It's always been, it will always be forever and ever to the glory for the name and the fame of Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. All right, let's pray. God, we thank you so much for the recovering of our identity. That despite what the world would have us believe, whether that we're better than we ought to think of ourselves or that we're worse off, that it has nothing to do with us. It has everything to do with you living in and through us. Jesus, that your ministry would not end after the cross, that we would not see your ministry as being completed upon your ascension, but that we would see the transfer of your ministry to us, that we would be encouraged and empowered and emboldened and excited and be on mission that we are your chosen people because you first chose us, that we are your royal priesthood, that because we have a high priest, we so too can be priests of light in a dark world and that we would be a holy nation set apart within no matter where we live honoring you, glorifying you, being built up this spiritual house with you as our cornerstone, as the one who says we are the beloved of God. Jesus, thank you for what you've done. Thank you for enduring the cross, for enduring the disgusting manifestation of our sin, for bearing the weight of the sin of the entire world so that that disconnect in the Trinity would mean our insertion in the community of God forever. And I just pray that you would stir in the hearts of every single person here how this looks to live out come tomorrow morning. That you would put us on mission, your mission, that we would see your work in a whole new light as it is to live through us today. That there'd be no more excuses in the body. That we would be unified moving forward under the banner, under the name for the fame of Jesus until you come back. Jesus, we love you, can't wait to see you. But until then, we got a little work to do. Thank you for choosing us. In Jesus' name, amen.